to that generation and to every generation of Christians, don't panic when uh, natural calamities, when wars, when upheavals, you know, false religions, all these things are just a sign of the entire church age that will carry on for, has been carrying on for 2,000 years now, still carrying on. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vast Podcast. So great to have you tuning in with us. I am here with my amazing co-host, the one and only David Campbell. David, how are you on this fine day? Yeah, well, it's winter in Ontario, but there's no snow, so I'm in a reasonably good mood. Uh, not <laughs> optimal, but better than it might be. I can't tell you how many uh, – this is, this is going to sound like uh, – uh, well, anyway, <laughs> sometimes I talk to people and um, and we get to talking about the podcast and they they inquire about uh, your your personality because you you take a certain kind of tack on this show. Um, but I tell them that you're one of the warmest, most friendly people out. Well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> well, this is my persona for vast faith. We have to be very serious. Exactly. And, you know, we don't have to be too uh, personal or vulnerable or warm or anything like that. We're just. No, who wants joviality on a podcast? What a waste well, of exactly. time. Well, there's way too much of people spilling their own guts on podcasts and et cetera. We're supposed to be dealing with the truth. I, I try to be jovial enough for the two of us. Well, you do a very good job. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about uh, Matthew chapter 24, um, which is uh, often misunderstood uh, chapter in the New Testament uh, dealing with uh, uh, eschatological things. Um, and then we're also going to move on to chapter three of the book, The Incarnation of God. Uh, just in time for Christmas, this is obviously a subject that a lot of people are thinking about. A lot of churches are preaching on. Um, and this book is uh, just such a great read um, and certainly gets you thinking. So I wanted to begin with uh, Matthew chapter 24 uh, in full transparency. This was in my my Bible reading this morning. Um, and as I was reading it, I just reminded once again uh, how confusing these things can be um, on the surface. And so pff, lucky me, I get to sit down with a Bible scholar on a regular basis uh, and and ask all my questions. I think the best way to do it, honestly, is uh, to to read uh, it section by section um, and just create room for us to have a conversation about it. So in Matthew 24, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came out to point to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will okay, not be thrown so down. Stop, stop there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Jesus is setting the stage here to understand Matthew 24 and the parallels in the other gospels in the in Luke and Mark. You have to appreciate that Jesus is speaking about two sets of events. Number one, what he starts off with right here. He's prophesying the literal destruction of the Jewish temple, mm -hmm. which is the chapter proceeds. We're going to see happens within one generation. Right. And uh, it did happen uh, in um, the 80, uh, rebellion 
between 66 and 70 AD, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the rebellion, Jewish rebellion against Rome, the Romans came and destroyed the temple. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is prophesying that in these first two verses. Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, <clears throat> and so then, uh, maybe if you'll allow me to sort of proceed, mm-hmm. um, uh, that was very gracious of you <laughs> because you're so warm and I'm so such a cold hearted Calvinist or something anyway. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Um, so then that's the thing. That's the big, big thing that you have to get. Uh, and, and when you read this and, and, and if you read it, you'll see it. It's fairly clear, I think. So then the disciples came to him after this, this is verse three saying, uh, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Because they're assuming that he's talking about the end of the age. The Jewish people were focused on the coming of the Messiah and the uh, the end of, of history as they understood it, mm-hmm. which would usher in either some kind of heavenly world or a um, blissful uh, earthly uh, um, period of uh, period of earthly history where the Messiah would rule over the Jewish people, you know, for an indefinite period of time. So Which they didn't. They would, uh, they would be basing that upon, uh, like prophecies of, in Isaiah. The end, well, the end of Isaiah, for instance. Right. Okay. And so they so they had these expectations. They weren't a hundred percent sure of what it looked like, but the, the disciples are reflecting this speculation of the end of the age, and so. Jesus then warns them right off in verse four, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name. Now he's speaking, generally speaking of, you know, what's going to happen uh, following his death and resurrection in the, in the age, the age that lies ahead right off. He's telling them this isn't going to happen immediately. The, the end of the age, right? He's prophesied the destruction of the temple. That's, that's the close up event that that is actually going to happen in a generation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but when it comes to the end of the age that they're asking about that's something way off in the indefinite future and so he says you know don't go into a panic many will come saying i'm the christ when you hear of wars and rumors of wars don't be alarmed for all these things must take place but the end is not yet Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, earthquakes, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pain. So basically, all those things are to characterize the entire age from Jesus' death and resurrection until his return, which we call the church age. All these things, the wars, the rumors of wars, false messiahs, false teachers, um, famines, earthquakes, etc. And so he's saying, don't panic and don't get into the mentality where you're always looking for something happening around the corner, which of course is the very problem that uh, a lot of Christians have fallen into in these past right. generations. Okay. So just pause for a second there because we, we, uh, we need to make this really clear. So when Jesus says to them that there's not going to be one stone left upon another in reference to the Jewish temple, he's prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and, uh, in AD 70. And then the, that prompts the question from the disciples, you know, tell us more, Jesus, <laughs> what are you, what are you saying? 
that sounds like the opposite of what we expect. Um, and so they asked the question, what, what's going to be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And then Jesus then goes, actually, uh, that event that I just prophesied, that's just going to be one of lots of trial and tribulation that characterize the quote unquote end of the age, which we would now call the church age. That's one example uh, of verse seven for nation will rise against nation. So is that what he's expecting them to have in mind? You know, fast forwarding 40 years down the line when they're seeing Jerusalem get, get destroyed. They're like, Oh, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Nation was going to rise against nation and, and not to be fooled or alarmed because that's just, that's all just part of the birth pains. Yeah. That's part of what he's saying that, uh, to that generation and to every generation of Christians, don't panic when uh, natural calamities, when wars, when upheavals, uh, you know, false religions, all these things are just a sign of the entire church age that will, you know, uh, carry on for what has been carrying on for 2000 years now, still carrying on. Mm-hmm. So he's and so then uh, is there anything significant? To the, the destruction of Jerusalem, it, like, is that the end of an age in the sense that we moved from the, I don't know what you would call it, the, the age of the law into the age of the gospel or the church age? No, the, the, the uh, you know, the, the church was born at Pentecost, mm-hmm. but it was a kind of overlapping for a generation. Mm-hmm. The Jewish temple was still in operation and it didn't really affect Christians, the growing um you know, a body of, of Christians who were Gentiles and, and who, or even Jewish converts who lived outside of um, uh, Palestine. Sure, so. mm-hmm. But for those Christians that lived, who, for those Jewish Christians who lived in Palestine, then they were in an overlapping period, all of, all of their own, where they were still, uh, involved in the, you know, prayers in the temple and so on, but they were Christians. They had become Christians as well. And so that's where you get Paul going back to Jerusalem and, and paying the money for men to have their hair shaved and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the Christian community in Jerusalem was wanting to be a good witness. They didn't want to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, throw the, the law overboard. And of course, they struggle because they had to come to grips with, well, you're still going to the temple, but do you really believe in salvation by grace or not? And that's where Paul and Peter got into an argument. So there was a little overlap. There was an overlapping Mm -hmm. period of time that pertained to the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem Mm -hmm. that ended when the temple was destroyed Mm -hmm. a generation later. But so Jesus carries on uh, verse 9 down to verse 14 again he's talking about the whole church age in general they'll deliver you up to tribulation mm-hmm. you'll be hated by the nations many will fall away there'll be false prophets um, and the gospel of kingdom of the kingdom this is significant verse 14 will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations ethnos meaning right. people group and then the end will come and and then uh, the end will come and then the end will come right? which is to say to to his his disciples what you're expecting to be the end of the age uh is not so so uh the arrival of the messianic kingdom you know here and now and and, and even the this cataclysmic event of the destruction of the temple and of jerusalem 
is not the end of the age. Mm-hmm. It's something that's going to happen, but there's a much longer indefinite period of time that's going to be characterized by all these turmoils and woes and so on, which we recognize at the book of Revelation uh, portrays exactly the same set of events through its, you know, the, the various plagues and so on that are, mm-hmm. that are occurring throughout the church age. So it, it's saying exactly the same as what Jesus is saying here. So, um, but the end of that age of the church age and the return, the return of the Messiah, the return of Christ will be marked by the gospel. Of the, it won't happen until the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed to all nations. Now, I don't have time to go into it in this conversation, but um, this is all tied into the original commission to Adam to be fruitful and multiply, extend the boundaries of the garden at the ends of the earth. Adam failed. Israel is told to be a light to the nations. Israel failed. Mm-hmm. Jesus will do what Adam and Israel have failed to do. He will extend the boundaries of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth before mm-hmm. he returns. And that's why this verse is really important that because it, it, it indicates that Jesus is going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Now, success isn't the entire world will be become Christians. Uh, everything will be <laughs> in a wonderful situation. But what it does mean is the gospel of the kingdom will go to every people group and, and of which there are thousands, as we know. Uh, many, many, many of which have not yet even heard the gospel. So if there is an indicator, which I'm very reluctant to, to, to make any statement, but if there is an indicator of the return of the Lord, then uh, this condition has to be satisfied, mm-hmm. which it isn't yet, mm-hmm. uh, before Jesus is going to return. So, so he's talking to them. First, he's saying, okay, the temple is going to be destroyed. However, don't panic. Because for an indefinitely long period of time, there is going to be woes, false religion, troubles, persecutions. All these things are going to happen. But but through it all, the gospel of the kingdom is gradually going to extend and extend and extend. And mm-hmm. finally, it will reach the ends of the earth. And that's when the end of the age will be. That's right. the first 14 verses of the chapter, right? right. And just to, so just to pause real quick, because this is a, a point of differentiation in, in different schools of thought, right? So someone who is in the post-millennial camp will look at verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And they would look at that in conjunction with the Great Commission in, in uh, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples in, of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. So, so I've heard like a Doug Wilson, for example, ask the question, like, is, is Jesus going to be successful? Because if he's going to be successful in this, then that means that there is going to be the slow but sure Christianization of, of all the people groups around the world. Jesus is, after all, the ruling and reigning king. Right. But that's not what Jesus said here. Jesus Mm -hmm. didn't say that every nation will be saved. He said the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. Mm -hmm. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we see that at the very end of history in Revelation chapter 11, with the two witnesses conclude their testimony, Mm -hmm. that there will be a massive worldwide persecution against the church. Mm -hmm. I would love to be optimistic and say, hey, this is just going to turn out hunky dory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Lord will barely have to return because everyone will be, we have paradise on earth. Mm-hmm. However, that's just not what Jesus taught. 
Well, I think that they would be looking at that in conjunction with scriptures like uh, the mountain of the Lord being the chief among the mountains and all the nations of the world streaming up to it. Um, Things like that would probably be in in view. Well, I I would say it's what we would call an over-realized eschatology. It's it's reading a lot into uh, those verses that isn't necessarily in it to begin with Mm -hmm. and then denying other explicit statements, clear statements of scripture that indicate the opposite. Mm -hmm. And Jesus himself said, um, you know, broad is the way to destruction Mm -hmm. and the the many many go that way. So Mm -hmm. was Jesus mistaken? Mm -hmm. Is is there going to be a change where suddenly Jesus' words don't apply anymore and Jesus got it wrong and everybody is just falling into salvation? I don't think so. That's Mm -hmm. not what Jesus taught. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think that, um, uh, so, you know, for that and other reasons, uh, I reject that. I just don't think that's a biblical point of view. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, they, they take a couple of verses and, and build a whole doctrine out of them. I mean, that Benjamin Warfield, who was a great, uh, theologian at Princeton before Princeton went liberal and had, had many, many good things to say. Uh, but he actually believed that every last person in the face of the earth would be saved before mm-hmm. Christ returned. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know how such an intelligent man could read his Bible and come to that conclusion. But anyway. Well, it is worth noting that there are certainly a lot of credible uh, theologians I, who hold the post-millennial yeah, view. And I would not agree with that statement, Jake. I, I would say that there are a few. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, um, I think it's... I don't mean to be nasty, but uh, I'm not sure that there are credible New Testament scholars that really would hold that view. Uh, I think, but I think there are a very small number of of interpreters, Bible interpreters, Bible teachers, um, but not many. It would not be the mainstream view at all. Um, so uh, from you know, in terms of interpretation of the New Testament. Okay. So we're satisfied to say that some hold that view, but the majority view is what we're about to espouse well, uh, or what well, we have espoused so far. There's a mixture because we also have that whole pre-millennial thinking called uh, dispensationalism uh, pre uh, yes. Pre pre-millennial pre tribulational. That is dispensationalism. Right. right. If you're, if you're post tribulation, premillennial, you're, you're not a classic, you're a classic premillennialist. Right. Um, but in North America, the largest constituency uh, are dispensationalists, but they're people that don't, that, that agree, you know, on paper, but they don't really understand what dispensational dispensation even is they just believe right. in it. Would, would you rather would you rather let's play a game would, would you rather somebody err on the side of post-millennialism or err on the side of dispensationalism well my that's pick your poison <laughs> uh, but um see uh, see so the I'll way pick. that i kind of see it is i i kind of feel like and and i probably don't know enough about uh about post-millennialism so maybe what i'm about to say you're you'll just fully rebut. But I kind of feel like in some sense, maybe we ought to be functional post-millennialists in the sense of optimism 
Um, in fact, I think even one of the ways I've heard Sam Storms talk about the difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism is that amillennialism is, uh, is, I guess, kind of a, a, a pessimistic postmillennialism in the sense that we both agree we're in the millennium right now. Postmillennialists think it's, it's earthly. They kind of make the same mistake as uh, what the Jews of Jesus' day were making. It's like it's heaven here, heaven now. Um, and Amils agree that we're in the millennium, but the millennium is something that's happening in the spiritual realm, you know, uh, with Christ as King, and that yeah. we are we're going to experience more suffering than we will necessarily widespread success. Well, you see, I think um, I don't. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic. I would say I'm biblically realistic. Uh, I do believe that, see, the, the positive is right in the verse that I've read, the gospel of the kingdom will go to every nation. Mm-hmm. So I, and, and we're seeing that in our day, uh, on parallel numbers of conversions and people groups being reached. So I'm not pessimistic. Uh, and they say, post-millennials say that people like me preach a failed gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, the gospel doesn't fail, but those that are, those that God has chosen will be saved from every nation and mm-hmm. and we'll see a great in gathering, including Romans eleven among the Jewish people before the the mm-hmm. Lord returns. But I just think we're so you know, obviously setting people up for failure if or disappointment if they think that everything's gonna be hunky dory. Although, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're still far enough out probably from the Lord's return for the issue to be a little academic. But the de- practical danger of the view that you're alluding to is that it can become very triumphalistic mm-hmm. and uh you know on the assumption that everyone is going to get saved then it's the mandate of the church to start taking over the government of the nation mm-hmm. and that's where we, that's called theonomy that's a subdepartment of postmillennialism mm-hmm. which is actually quite damaging and dangerous in my opinion uh and and unbiblical uh and it really is like dispensational is like dispensationalism, but they kill me if they if they heard me saying this. But it's like dispensationalism in the sense that both dispensationalism and theonomists go back to the Old Testament law and reestablishment of Old Testament law, uh-huh. and I think it's quite dangerous for that reason, and mm-hmm. and I re- reject it. So um, I think there's lots of scope for you know um, I mean anyone that believes in the sovereignty of God is an optimist. You got to be, you know, Jesus, and as the old saying goes, I've read, read to the end of the book and, and we win, you know, mm-hmm. God wins, Jesus wins. So I'm very optimistic that way, but you know, we, we're going to face a trial, suffering and opposition along the way. And mm-hmm. gee, if Jesus didn't teach that, I'm not sure what he did teach. Mm-hmm. So I can't see that all of a sudden the rules are going to change and what Jesus taught isn't going to apply anymore. And everything's going to turn into some kind of paradise on earth. I can't buy it. But if you don't let me continue talking, I'll never get through this passage. Well, we, there's there's a lot of things that come up that need to be talked about. And I do think – I do I'm think – a hard time. Well, well to, to be – I guess to be fair to our post-millennial counterparts, not all of them uh, – and you said this. It's a subset. Not all of them would be classified as theonomists. Correct. Um, and I would say it's, it seems to me that some of them – would be not too far off of a typical Christian's view in terms of uh, uh, the role of Christ in the civic world. Um, and 
in that regard, they kind of have history backing them up uh, in regards to how it went in Rome um, and Christianity's eventual influence. And I know that there's a lot of negative things that can be said about uh, Constantine and, and all that, but there are certainly positive things that can be said as well. Um, and so, and when I talk to Christians about just like the conversation we had a few episodes ago, we both agree that Christianity should seek to exercise its responsible influence over the, the civic world because God's truth is truth. And that's ultimately what's going to lead to, to human flourishing. So you have, you have to slice it up pretty finely to, to be fair. Would you agree with that? Yep. Um, But in saying that, I remain convinced uh, about the uh, millennial view. Well, I'm glad to hear it. So carry on. Thank you. You're very gracious. So now uh, just to go back to my the foundation I've laid, Jesus said there's something immediate going to happen, but then he's preparing them for the long haul. Right Mm -hmm. now in verse 15, he he goes back to where he started about the temple. He says, so therefore he's, he's bringing them back to his comments about the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So if you read Daniel, you'll understand Daniel is talking about something, you know, a desecration of the temple. The and that's, that's temple. Matthew there putting that in parentheses. He correct. Yep. Then, and then, and this is, there's, there's, there's a real, a practical pastoral warning here. So Jesus is saying that when now he's saying, now I'm going back to what I said at the beginning about the destruction of the temple. And I'm giving you a warning because remember this generation, he says, well, let's see it all. Um, I'm giving you a warning that the abomination of desolation is going to, there's going to be a desecration of the temple that you're going to see. And, the sign that is the sign for you to get out of Dodge. You need to flee. If you're in Jerusalem or even the surrounding area, you need to flee. And he goes on and talks about various things. Uh, and um, those various things basically being like that, that <laughs> pray your flight may not be in winter in the Sabbath and alas right. for women who are pregnant. So there's going to be some cataclysm arrives and you're going to have to flee. Right. And then don't, he don't be like Lot's wife and look back, just get out. Right. right. And, and then he says, then now, so what are you at right now? So we're now up to verse, verse 23. 23. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've gone over, you know, I've, boiled down a few verses there and then he says then so that the then is when all this happens when the abomination of desolation has happened you've had to flee and all the rest of it then after that if anyone says look here is the christ or there he is don't believe it false prophets and so after the destruction of the temple Mm. um false christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders i told you beforehand so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. So these are times when people are, you know, after this cataclysmic event of the desolation of the, the uh, uh, temple mm-hmm. and Christians have fled Jerusalem, uh, after that, there's going to be this indefinite period of 
uh, fear and false predictions of the Messiah and this and that. And he says, don't keep your focus on that because, and yet now he's drawing them back to, you know, all this long period of time, there's going to be travails and mm-hmm. troubles and false teachers and mm. uh, opposition. But he says, as the lightning comes from the West and shines um, as far as the East, so will be the coming of the son of man. So uh, people that say, oh, he's come or oh, he's coming or he's around the corner or maybe he's already returned even, which which even was happening within the New Testament days yep. in the in the early church. He's saying, no, he said, it will be visible to mm-hmm. everyone. Because this is a verse that destroys the rapture theory. Can, can it be simply said, David, that essentially verses 15 to 27 are a recapitulation of verses 1 to 14? So in, verse, in verses 1 to 14, he begins with the destruction of the temple and then talks about the time that follows. And in verses 15 to 27, he begins with the abomination of desolation, which is linked to the destruction of the temple. And then he talks about the time that follows. And both of those lists or both of those sections include the same kind of warnings about what people Correct. are going to be saying, what's going to be happening. Right. Because all through this passage, he is, it's like a, a counterpoint, a musical term. He goes back from one to the other and one to the other. He's talking about the short term and the long term. Like those- binoculars if you look or binoculars i guess if you look through one end you see close up if you look through the other end you see far off he's talking about both he's going back and forth between them mm-hmm. now then so then so then now he's saying about he's prophesying his return uh, when his return comes it will be clearly visible to everyone versus verse 27 mm-hmm. which and will then be once the gospel has been proclaimed to the whole world Correct. Mm-hmm. And then immediately after the tribulation of those days, now everywhere in the New Testament where this word thlipsis, which is the Greek word for tribulation, everywhere it occurs in the New Testament, it refers to this present wait, age. Wait, 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 wait. You skipped a really important verse. What in the heck does he mean when he says wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather? You can't well, skip that verse. He's just saying... Uh, He's just saying it'll be obvious. I was driving down road the other day and there was a whole flock of birds over some animal that, you know, had been killed in the road. And it was just really obvious that what had happened. So what he's, it's just another way of rephrasing the lightning shining from the East and coming to the West. It's the same thing phrased from a different perspective. In other words, there'll be no doubt about it. Uh, <laughs> it really? Really? He's purely using like a an analogy there. So like it's going to be really obvious, just like it's obvious when there's a bunch of vultures around a dead carcass that something is dead in the same way it's going to be obvious that I'm returning. Right. Wow. There you go. Have we satisfied? No. Is there has there any has there ever been anybody in the history of Christianity, uh, especially since the age of dispensationalism, who has used that verse to say that? We're going to be be like with the bird the birds in the sky. That seems to be like an opportune uh uh that I do not know. Okay. But it, it, the interpretation of it seems pretty obvious to me. Wherever the So then is, okay, great. Go ahead. There you go. You can go and study that out a bit more if you want. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so everything that's happened 
with all the false Christ, false prophets, persecutions, wars, rumors of wars throughout the church age, that's the tribulation, right? And and in in Paul uses the word 33 times, I think, for 31 of 33 times, it's clearly refers to something he's going through right now. Same in the book of Revelation. Um, it's not a seven-year period at the end of time. The tribulation equates out to the church age. Mm-hmm. So immediately after the tribulation of those days or the church age, then Jesus is talking now specifically about his return. And there's these cosmic signs uh, you get it in Revelation as well. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. He borrows these uh, from various places in the Old Testament. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is clearly the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. This is the beginning of the destruction of the present cosmos as we know it, and the return of Christ. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect. So that refers to the resurrection of the dead and the beginning of the eternal kingdom. So Jesus, for these first 31 verses, there's this counterpoint of I'm talking, you're asking me about the destruction of the temple, Mm -hmm. and I'm saying, here's a warning about the destruction of the temple and it's going to happen within one generation. And when you see such and such happen, you've got to get out of town. But after that, uh, you know, don't give in to panic or worry or looking around every corner for the, my return, because all these things are going to happen for an indefinitely prolonged period of time. And then finally, uh-huh. uh, and it will be obvious absolutely to everyone that the the sun's gonna, the stars are gonna fall out of the sky, and all the rest of it, and 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 that's the end, and there'll be no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. So, so now are you I, gonna go on to the next verses? Because if you do, yes, I want to ask. Yes. So ask verse thirty-two. First. So okay. now, so I, now I, I have two questions. Oh, all right. Okay. So first question is this. Uh, can we just quickly say what is it surmised to be uh, the the abomination of desolation? What is what what do we think that okay, is? So, and then second so question happened, is: Is this a good time right. to introduce the terms of preterism and partial preterism? Well, so what happened? What happened actually was that the rebellion against the Romans was conducted by the zealots. It wasn't the Pharisees who were the teachers of the law. It mm-hmm. wasn't the Sadducees, who were the priests in the temple, it was a third group that appear also in the New Testament called the Zealots. And they were uh, the political people. They were the, you know, political extremists that wanted to get rid of the Romans and so on. They were godless people and they seized power and uh, they couldn't care a hoot about the temple. So they took uh, sort of man that might be described as the village idiot, we wouldn't describe it that way anymore because it would be demeaning. But somebody who was a a handicapped person, developmentally handicapped person, they took, put him in the temple and made him the high priest. And then, you know, they're... That's what Rome did? No, no, this is the zealots, the the Jewish zealots. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were sacrificing pigs in the temple and all this type of thing. So... When that happened, history tells us that 
the early Christians, or sorry, the, the entire Christian community in Jerusalem fled because, I mean, obviously the Christian community, as much as the other members of the Jewish community, other than the zealots, would all have been horrified at the desecration of the temple. Mm -hmm. um, but the Christians remembered the prophecy of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And when this happened, they, uh, and, and, and the Romans in the first, they, the Roman siege of Jerusalem lasted for four years from 66 to 70. In the first two years, the Romans allowed people out of town. And so the Christian, this, this, desecration happened somewhere around, I can't remember, 66, 67. I can't remember the exact date. I sh should remember, but I can't. But when it happened, the Christians en masse left Jerusalem and fled, most of them to Pella across the Jordan, because they believed that Jesus' prophecy was about to be fulfilled. And so therefore, they all got out before the Romans closed off the exit ramp. And what happened eventually was a terrible Holocaust. The Romans slaughtered tens of thousands of people. Uh, it was absolutely awful. They not only destroyed the city, but they destroyed everyone, man, woman, child within the city. And, uh, uh, and it was an absolutely cataclysmic event. But the Christian community was saved because they had listened to Jesus' prophecy. So that's mm -hmm. why you know, Jesus gave this prophecy as a, as a, as a prophetic warning. And so, and, and he's giving it again in verse 32, he's, he's taking them back from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So when you see these things, now here, there's a really important differentiation begins to come into the text. He's talking about these things and those things as two different things. So when you see these things, that's just what he's finished talking about, about the abomination of desolation, etc. cetera. You, um, you know that it, it, he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So that's the destruction of the temple. And who's he? When, These, when you well, see, it could be translated say, he or it. Uh, and so... Um, and for those of you who are trying to follow along, we're looking at verse 33. So also when you see yeah. all these things, the destruction of the temple, it, the abomination of desolation, you know that he is near at the very gates. Yeah, is, could or, he be some or, kind of antichrist figure or... It, 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 it could be, it could be, uh, you know, the, the devil... Um, or if it's translated, it is near it, uh, because it's third person singular, it could be it. I, as far as I know, it could be it. Um, it would just mean the event is near. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so, but notice, uh, the difference when you see these things, verse 33, verse 36, but now that, so now he's switching gears. Again, from the short term to the long term, but concerning that day. So there's a total differentiation between differentiation between these things that are going to happen in this generation and that day and hour mm -hmm. that no one knows. So the one set of events he is clearly uh, marking out as occurring within a specific time frame that the people listening to him will live through. But the second set of events concerning that day and hour 
is something that is known by nobody. He says, not even the son, but the father only. Uh And this, again, is the time of the return of Christ uh, when, you know, the cosmic signs will take place and the Lord will return. And at that time, then he goes on and talks about, you know, uh, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. So in other words, the, the lost... Uh, will not have any sense of awareness of what is happening. It will come upon them suddenly, mm-hmm. and uh, just like it did in the days of the flood. Uh, and then uh, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. And, of course, then we get into this classic uh, misappropriation of this verse in favor of the rapture. Right. Uh, two will be taken and one left. But in context, the one left, is the, the one person. that was saved in the days of Noah. Right. Those that were left were taken away to destruction. So it's the opposite of the rapture. And so then Jesus says, stay awake. So Verse you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You will know on what day Jerusalem will be destroyed, but you don't know on what day the Lord is coming. Mm. And, he, and he just says, and, and he sets a standard here for all of us, which is, you must always be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So it doesn't matter when we live. We always have to be ready. I mean, I've said I, I don't think the Lord's going to return within my lifetime. I don't think he is because I can't see that the gospel of the kingdom will come to every nation. However, it's not up for me to sit. To, up, you know, maybe I, I've got it wrong. Regardless of when the Lord is going to return, my attitude has to be to be ready, because obviously the Lord uh, may well come for me. My advanced age might come before the end of this podcast. Who knows? Depends how nice you are to me. God the willing. Lord come, the Lord may come for me. I, I've got to be ready. I want to be ready to meet the Lord. So that's in in kind of, I don't know how long we've taken, a half an hour or something, but that's how to understand Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13, those three parallel passages, uh, basically all cover the same ground in the Mm -hmm. same way and Mm -hmm. make this distinction between these two sets of events. So when you get it mixed up and say, oh, this generation is going to live to see it all, I've heard it taught that uh, the beginning of that generation is 1948, the restoration of Israel, this generation will live to see it all, is the generation that's born after Israel is restored. But where do you read that into all this? That restoration of Israel is nowhere in the in the New Testament. And Jesus is talking about the destruction of Rome, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans that happened in AD 70. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So that's you one know, that's, way of reading Matthew 24 or the book of Revelation. It, well, dispensationalists is a futuristic. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, they they dispensationalists are stuck on this. This generation will live to see it all mm-hmm. problem. Right. That's a real problem for dispensationalists because what generation is is it? Exactly. Darby and they they read all of this as happening in the future. For 200 years, they've been prophesying the imminent return of Christ assuming that this generation is the generation that they're living in. Mm-hmm. And the last I heard was interpretation. I heard was that a generation could be 80 years and 80 years starting in the re- restoration of the political state of Israel, 1948 equates out to 2028. So the Lord has to return by 2028. 
But then if you if you go back, there's got to be a tribulation period of seven years before that. So we've missed it. You know, it would have been in 2021. It all just shows the stupidity of of trying to project an event that Jesus clearly taught had already happened in the first century into the future. And so if we want to understand this passage, we've got to realize that Jesus is talking about something that happened 2000 years ago Mm -hmm. and the rest of it that is that is going to unfold throughout the entire church age. And the sign of it, uh, the, the sign of the return of the Lord has got nothing to do with Israel being restored, the temple or anything like that. Uh, the, the, this, the signs of the return of the Lord will be, um, you know, the stars will fall out of heaven, the lightning flashes from one end to the other, mm. you know, et cetera. It'll be obvious. All right. Okay. So, so just pause really quick because so far we're describing one ditch, that ditch being the futuristic reading of this passage. The other ditch is what's called preterism or, or partial preterism. Uh, well, I guess the, the ditch being preterism and the amillennial view would be partial preterism somewhere in there. So and that, and, right. And that describe the preterism because that typically that falls into alignment with the postmillennial thing, right? That actually everything Jesus has said in Matthew 24, all of it has happened. And even down to like, uh, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of the Man, all the tribes will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Would they read that in like a Daniel 7 type way in terms of like... Well, they, they, they read that. Uh, they simply assume that uh, that was fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay, so talk so, about all that. Talk about preterism. Well, you see, the... You, the nuance of this passage is you've got to understand Jesus is talking about two different time frames. As these said. things and those things. These, these things days and those, those days. Right. This generation and, you know, uh, events proceeding into the indefinite future, two different things. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, dispensationalists tend to see it all future. People call preterists. Preterist just comes from the Latin word for past. They, they interpret the whole shebang as having occurred back in the first century. Mm-hmm. So it's the opposite error. They, but both of them miss the, the, the twofold aspect of timing that Jesus is talking about. And if you say it all happened then, then you come to the ridiculous interpretation that the cosmic signs of the falling of the stars in the sky and all the rest of it and the return of the Son of Man happened at the, in AD 70. And I think that's absurd. And it actually kind of at its extreme goes into an absolute heresy, which is what is called full preterism, which states that Jesus returned in AD 70. And ah. so it focuses everything on uh, the most significant event of eschatology was the fall of Jerusalem 2000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see any evidence for that in the New right. Testament at all. And it, then what it, do they do with that? Like, like- if, if you look at, if you look at, um, I don't think that the letters of the New Testament, even the letters that were written probably after the fall of Jerusalem, possibly Hebrews and Revelation and 1, 2, and 3, John, for instance, possibly First and Second Peter, Jude, that these letters, possibly Jude, but the letters that may have been written after the fall of the temple don't seem mm-hmm. to be all that concerned about the fall of the temple. The letters that were written prior to the fall of the temple, all Paul's letters, he doesn't seem to be very concerned about the temple one way or the other at all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, the temple 
um, or its fall did not seem to be an issue to the apostolic church. Mm -hmm. So why would it be an issue to us now mm -hmm. when it didn't seem to be to the apostolic church? The key thing for the New Testament uh, Christians uh, was the end of the law. And so they weren't that bothered about the fact the temple was still standing. It was kind of, you know, in fact, the, the Jewish Christians sort of paid lip service and went along with some of the things. Um, it didn't interfere with their understanding of Christ or the cross or justification by faith. Um, it just wasn't a big issue. And mm -hmm. uh, so I can't, I, I, I anyway, um, What's so, their motivation well, in the preterist reading? Like, what? Well, it, it, they have a motivation, in my opinion, um, because uh, the book of Revelation uh, talks about tribulation, hardship, persecution, and suffering as characteristic of everything that's happening through all of its events. Mm -hmm. But if you believe, if you're a preterist, you believe that all of that uh, – was already happened. happened back in the first century. Mm -hmm. uh, and there isn't, you know, so, so when Jesus, uh, when uh, revelation talks about persecution and suffering and so on, that that's something that really isn't going to be the case anymore. Like they, it, they, they, uh, uh, you, if you, if you want to believe that the millennium is a golden time of prosperity, you have to basically t somehow consign everything in the Gospels, or at least everything Jesus predicted in the Gospels, and everything that's there in the book of Revelation, you have to consign it to the distant past. And so therefore, they come along and say, well, you know, really, all these travails and traumas and all the hardships, that, that isn't something Jesus was talking about in the future. That's something that, that happened way back then. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I, I just don't see any biblical evidence for that at all. I think it's actually quite dangerous because Christians today, um, you know, where we're living in too much comfort in the West uh, is where the gospel is not progressing. You know, we, we need to be prepared to take more of a stand. Uh, we need to be prepared to, to suffer, to, you know, uh, on account of our testimony to Christ and be distinct from the world uh, and we need to be prepared for that. And we need to be sensitive, more sensitive than we are to what our brothers and sisters are going going through in other parts of the world and and um, and not sit around sort of trying to build castles in the sky or pretend that, you know, we're just going to take over the world and everything's going to be hunky dory. I think that's just stupid. Um, anyway, I I that's that's about. So I'll just say this one thing in closing, which is that. um I always say your eschatology affects everything you believe. Mm -hmm. And I get so tired of people that wander around saying, I'm a pan-millennialist. I really don't care. It's all going to pan out in the end. I'm not going to pay any attention to eschatology. A pan-millennialist? Because I was like that once. But uh, the fact is that your eschatology is extremely important. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it affects everything you believe one way or the other. It seeps into everything. Mm -hmm. And if we want to understand and bring our eschatology into line with the teaching of Jesus about suffering, carrying the cross and so on. Um, and the, and, and how the kingdom operates in this world, we need to understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with you. And that is 
why I feel drawn to the amillennial view because um, it seems to me that that's the way the kingdom wins is uh, through um, Christ crucified. Um, and through our following him in the way of the cross. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the most powerful testimony we have, mm-hmm. not taking up arms to destroy all the people that disagree with us politically. Well, yes, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But in in saying that, um, and this this is always the tension um, that we seem to come back to again and again, is that's a false dichotomy. The options are not um, be willing to suffer or destroy, destroy all of your political or worldview enemies. There, there, there are certainly um, other ways of, of slicing that up. Like to, for me, I actually see one of the routes to suffering as a willingness to stand for truth. Um, And, Standing for truth, I think, is not just saying what you believe. I think it's, um, it's, it's giving the effort to uh, bring truth to bear on the way things run. And I think Christians will be persecuted for that and Christians will suffer for that. And in response to that, we are not to retaliate. Um, and I think that's the, the difference is it, it's a non-retaliatory effort to advance because th- this is to me one of the potential pitfalls of of amillennialism is the, is in the is not necessarily in the do- the doctrine itself but the holder of the view might kind of become a little bit fatalistic in the sense of oh you know just whatever's going to happen is going to happen i won't vote or i won't speak I won't get involved because ultimately we're just destined to suffer. And so I, I, to me, I don't think that that's the right way to live either. No, but if you're reformed in your theology, you agree with Abraham Kuyper, who said there's not one square inch of, of ground on this earth over which Christ does not cry mine. That's mm-hmm. the other part, you know, that, that Christ is crying out, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the listener, if they're unfamiliar with Kuiper, should know that he was highly involved, if not even, from what I understand, towards the latter part of his life, overly involved in the political sphere. Well, he became a prime minister in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he was, um, even though he was a, a theologian to start with. Um, and, and I guess that my point in saying that he was overly involved is not that he became a, a prime minister, but from what I understand, became kind of disengaged with the church and just kind of solely operated in the political sphere. Well, you know, he moved from one to the other, but you can't do everything. <laughs> you can't do everything at once. He left an incredible legacy behind him. Mm-hmm. I think there, you know, if we, there's truth in tension. Truth is always held in tension. Mm-hmm. It's the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of people and so on. And so on the one hand, uh, you know, we believe that God is Lord over this creation. We don't believe he's handed it over to the devil. So there's hope. On the other hand, we recognize that the kingdom does move ahead. But as a friend of mine says, always with a price to pay. That's the tension. That's the balance. We do see progress, but there's a price to pay. 
-hmm. It's not going to be all easy going. Mm -hmm. It's not, but it's not going to be all defeat either. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we, you know, uh, we do have the power of God, but we express it through the laying down of our lives. There is a place for Christians in politics, but their co conduct should be just as Christ-like in, in the political sphere as it is in their own family or in their own church or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think a man like Mike Pence would exemplify that to a, quite a high degree. Uh, I mean, just looking from outside the American situation, very gracious man uh, and uh, very uncompromising in his beliefs, but uh, he's gracious and courteous and kind toward his opponents. And that's, that's, I'm not, I'm not saying vote for Mike Pence or whatever. I'm just saying, you know, that's He's encouraging. Running. To me. <laughs> oh, well, he might, but I mean, um, uh, I'm just saying that's the kind of person, man or woman that a Christian in politics should, you know, should aspire to have some of those mm -hmm. characteristics. Yeah. And uh, I don't even mean to, to, it's so hard. Like, I don't even mean to just boil this down to the political sphere. I think all I mean to say, to your point, because our eschatology affects everything, I think it would be a pity if those who held to the amillennial view kind of just relegated the, the, the run of things, you know, up to a fatalistic approach. Um, and I could that see that potentially happening. That that it, it is unlikely to happen because many amillennialists are also reformed in their theology. Okay, so, so talk about that. Why, why does being reformed in your theology save you from being faithful? Because the whole essence of reformed theology is the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, and as Revelation portrays so it. Me, because they believe that God is sovereign, uh, that I guess to say it in August, in uh, in Augustine's view, a just society is a society that gives everybody their due. The person who most deserves their due is God. God is sovereign, and therefore a just society must give God his due. And that due is allegiance. That due is is worship. That due is obedience. Um, and so until a society is giving that obedience to God, a society can never really said to be just. Yeah, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Book of Revelation consistently portrays even the acts of Satan as being under the control of God. So even where we encounter suffering and hardship and persecution and difficulty, we still believe that God is in control. That's one of the main messages of Revelation. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of the beginning of history, the Lord of the end of history, and the Lord of everything in between. So I don't think that our millennialism is pessimistic. Uh, we live in what I call the great in-between, uh, in-between, you know, the resurrection of Christ and his return. The kingdom of God is broken in in power, and that's an amazing thing. At the same time, we still live in a fallen world and we're challenged at, at every corner by the enemy and his forces. And we live in a battle. That's just reality. Ultimately, we will win the battle at the return of the Lord. Um, along the way, there'll be some, uh, you know, uh, setbacks and there'll be price to pay. That Christians are martyred. They lose their lives. They, mm -hmm. you know, etc. cetera. Uh, but it, that doesn't detract from my belief in the sovereignty of God. God has an infinite capacity to work everything out for good, even the things that are difficult, and to bring good out of everything, even the things that are most difficult. Mm -hmm. I guess, too, 
foundationally the way that we should think about the success of the church is what God is doing in the church, not necessarily how the church is interacting with the world. What I mean by that is the the church is a world within a world. The church is the city of God. Um, And God is building that city. And that city is, I guess, somewhat of a prototype for the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come. Um, And so ultimately, even if there's apparent lack of success in a generation as as it regards to the world engaging, uh, the church engaging the world, there still can be plenty of success in the church itself, um, growing into maturity, experiencing the power of God, still seeing souls saved. Um, and those two things can both be true. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that they often are both true because it's at times when things are worst in the world uh, and it's hard to be a Christian or even there's persecution that, you know, the church comes alive. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is when there's compromise and complacency and, you know, it, it, it doesn't really cost anything to be a Christian and so on. Um so if I see God doing amazing things in the body of Christ, that's more important to me than stuff that's going on outside in politics or social realm. I mean, that's a concern to me. But uh, if I can see God at work in the church, mm-hmm. um, obviously, if what we, when we look at the church, we're depressed, that's that's difficult, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So we we want to ask God for some encouragement in these days of, of is moving among his people. And I think there is lots of encouragement around the world. I just think that probably a lot of what God's doing is the, about 95%, matter of fact, of what God is doing is not in North America. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in the South America and Asia and Africa and mm-hmm. so on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think I think the um, the net of it is that the the church has a witness to the world, and given the opportunity to share that witness about the truth, the church should. Uh, I just read this week about a, an exchange between uh, C.S. Lewis and um, Tolkien uh, as it regarded divorce laws in the UK, um, and C.S. Lewis trying to navigate that in regards to what what the practice should be in the church versus um, what the law should be in, in the state. And I think C.S. Lewis is willing to make some kind of compromise there. And I, there was a letter that uh, Tolkien had written to his friend. Uh, and I, I don't know if the, the letter ever got sent or something uh, or if he ended up holding on to it, but it was later discovered. Um, and in the letter, he, he took issue with C.S. Lewis's stance because his claim was that, uh, Christian truth is not just true for Christians. It's true for all of humanity. Um, and I thought that was quite a, a profound thing to say. And I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. And so as Christians have opportunity to share the truth, I think they should. And we pray that the world will listen because apart from the truth of Christ, there will be uh, destruction and dismay. But many times the truth will be rejected and that's the context by which Christian persecution often happens. And that was true for the earliest Christians in Rome. Their truth was that there is one Lord 
And so we will, we will not pay the tribute to Caesar. We're not going to worship Caesar. Um, and that their willingness to, to rebel against that is what got them persecuted. Anyway. Um, okay. Let's briefly turn to our book. <laughs> With what time we have left. Yeah, we'll take about 20 minutes. So um, chapter three is uh, great. Um, and the, I just want to turn to the title of it just to frame this part of the conversation. So beholding God in the face of Jesus, um, the incarnation and the attributes of God. So now we're kind of getting into a bit more of the nitty gritty about who God is and how the incarnation shows us, uh, shows us God's uh, attributes. Um, so let me just read maybe a quote or two uh, that will help set this part of the conversation up. Um, here's this one. God is not a composition, compound, combination, or collection of persons with the aggregate sum of these persons constituting his identity. God is not made up, as it were, of three persons, nor are these persons accidental or non-essential to who God is. The persons of God, like the attributes of God, are not extrinsically and abstractly related. Rather, the persons of God, like the attributes of God, are intrinsic and inherent to his indivisible being. So essentially the big point he's making in this chapter is that because God is inherently and intrinsically Trinity, that the only correct way of thinking about God is that God is Trinity. Uh, that means that God's attributes are also inherent and intrinsic to who he is. Um, so because his attributes are shared, uh, I think the term that he uses is that they're, they're communicated. They're, they're, they're experienced relationally between the triune God. Um, and therefore God's attributes are, um, are who he is all of the time. And he's not, you know, he's not partially holy or, or he's not, you know, part holiness and part love and, and part whatever, but he is, he is 100% holiness and 100% love um, to the fullness yeah. of his being. Do I have that basic idea, right? Yeah. I think the point that he's making is that, uh, uh, we have to be careful not to say, well, here's God and we're going to describe him. You know, he's loving, he's holy, he's this, he's that. Because when we talk, use language like that, we're implying that there is a standard of love or holiness or truth or power or whatever that is disconnected from God. It's like an independent idea floating out there. The, mm -hmm. the love is a is a something floating out there independent from god and 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 what he's saying is no we don't know what true love or holiness or omnipotence power freedom we don't know what any of these things are other than what god has shown us of himself this is who god is in his uh triune being um, that he shows us the meaning of love through his own interaction and through the sending of his son to us, that is love. Um, and there would be no love, no understanding of love 
if God had not revealed love as being who he is. The way that the writer of the book here puts it is God does who he is. Mm -hmm. So the, the doing of God, the loving, kind, just, righteous acts of God are an outflow of his personality. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's not like I've just been reading a book on Greek philosophy and, and, uh, you know, Plato has this idea of what he calls the forms and the forms are the eternal realities, which hold ultimate, that what is ultimate reality in Plato's cosmos is the forms. They're immaterial things. Uh, um, it's hard to just, they're not really beings, but they're realities. They're like abstractions. One of, one of them would be the good, you know, that mm -hmm. would be the ultimate form. What you know, the good, the virtuous, the, the kind or whatever, the beautiful, all these things are eternally preexistent in Plato's cosmos and they mm -hmm. define reality. And the problem for us is that we look at things through a platonic lens, even though we don't realize it because of the influence of Greek philosophy in our society, that we think of um, love as an eternal entity out there. Mm -hmm. And then we say, oh, well, God is quite good because we can identify him with that love. Mm -hmm. He exemplifies love maybe more than anybody else does. And that's not what the Bible says. There's no love outside of God. There's no entity. There's no concept. There's no reality. Love is God. God is love. That's what the Bible tells us. And we, there's no love outside of God and who God is and what God does within the Trinity and in his interaction with his world. That's how we understand what love is <clears throat> as a quality or characteristic of God. And just to clarify something you just said, when, when you say love is God, you don't mean, and I know you don't mean this. I'm just clarifying Sorry, for the listener. Love. God is love. It's, yeah. I didn't we don't, mean to say love is God. Right. God is love. Yeah. Uh, and, but what you're saying is, in, is really important and revolutionary in the sense that because God is the only eternal being um, and he is eternally triune, he never became triune. He is eternally triune, which means that all of his attributes, to use the term, are, are communicative. They are relational. So he is the definition of what it means to be loving because he has always been loved within himself. He is the definition of what it is to be joyful because he is joyful within himself. He is the definition of what it is to be free because he is freedom within himself. So, uh, you, and you could go on down down the line. Now, I, I'm really interested in what you just brought up as it regards Greek philosophy, because there's this one quote that I want to pull, and I, I think it links back to something that you said probably a handful of times on previous episodes. So he says, understanding God's attributes in a distinctly and robustly Christological manner calls into serious question the legit, le legitimacy of the, and there's a, a Latin word here, V-I-A-E, or ways a method of discussing divine attributes that originated in the ancient Greek philosophical tradition. And that was regrettably adopted and popularized by later Christian writers, such as pseudo Dionysius, John of Damascus, Thomas Aquinas, and Francis Turretin. So you've referenced the Aquinas thing a bit as it comes to Greek philosophical thought on Christian theology. C can you just talk a bit about that? Yeah. So he's, he's making the point that, um, you know, we try to prove the existence of God 
uh, and the 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 via via the word it just means away in Latin mm-hmm. v and and v v v a or v i e mm-hmm. is the plural meaning ways. Got it. Uh, so you know we have various proofs of, for the existence of God. There's a number of classic proofs of the existence of God, uh, and and he's saying no. Um, that assumes that we have the intellectual capacity, the moral capacity. Uh, we have the ability within ourselves to actually reach out and figure out who God is. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, no, the Bible tells us, actually, we know nothing of God. We have no capacity to understand who God is. We have no capacity to prove who God is. All we can do is accept what God has revealed of himself to us. And that's a different thing. Now, pause right there, because it would seem to me that the Bible makes some room for, um, apart from God's revelation in Scripture or in Christ, that humans can can use a natural, uh, a naturalistic um, approach to deducing that there maybe is a God or maybe deducing certain things about God. Um, and is that kind of the, like the Aquinas, and I'm thinking of scriptures like what Paul says in Athens, um, or, uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter one. So what he, in Romans one, he's concerned with establishing the guilt of every person. You know, what he's saying is that, uh, creation itself testifies to the reality of God so that we are all responsible for our rejection of God, because even through creation, we understand God. But the point there is that God has revealed himself in creation to us. It's not a question of God wants us to try to develop proofs or try to figure out who he is using our own mind or intellect or whatever. The point is that God has revealed himself, uh, if he didn't reveal himself in creation, we wouldn't know anything. Right. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. All all he's saying is we don't have some big independent um, faculty of reason, Mm -hmm. independent of of God, that is, that enables us to reach out and define who God is. And that's a really important thing because, you know, to to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil really means to say, well, we have an independent faculty of reason, and we're going to surmise things about God. We're going to make conjectures about God. We're going to say this, that, and the next thing about God on the basis of our own reason. And, of course, that's the downfall of everything in the church because um, God, you know, we reason about God. Then we take the Bible apart. We judge the Bible by our own reason. We judge God by our own reason. We've erected reason, our own human reason, as an independent standard Mm -hmm. by which to assess reality. And the truth is that we don't know any reality except that which God has revealed to us because he is reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and. uh, so what does he mean here by by indicting the likes of Aquinas? Well, you know, he's 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 saying the danger of that kind of approach is uh, that 
once you give such a significant place to the ability of human reason to figure out things about God, it's only going to be a matter of time before that reason gets out of control. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's exactly what happened with Aquinas because Aquinas, I think it, were, it worked okay in the context of medieval Europe, uh, you know, in the 13th century uh, when Aquinas lived, um, where it was a completely self-enclosed society. Uh, but, at, 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 but he laid, you know, he planted the seeds for uh, the glorification of human reason, which as soon as that self-contained, protected, you know, insulated medieval society began to fall apart and you entered into the Renaissance, um, then it, it, it almost, well, not quite instantly, but very, very quickly, uh, society and thinking began to develop, you know, philosophy began to develop independent of uh, divine revelation. Mm -hmm. Because Aquinas had said, we can know the truth about God through our own reason. So people said, well, what if my reason leads me to the understanding that this God of the Bible isn't actually God? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that there's some things about him that uh, I think aren't quite, you know, what I would agree with. And I'm going to head in a different or, or I, my reason, uh, my reason is leading me to the conclusion that God doesn't exist at all. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and Aquinas was he was picking up on Aristotelian thought, right? Who differed from Plato. If Plato is more the abstract form, Aristotle was more materialistic. And so, well, Aristotle believed in the unmoved mover, he believed the sort of original proof for the existence of some kind of, but you can't say it's God. For Aristotle, it was just everything has is an infinite, you know, there's a chain of cause and effect that has to stop somewhere. And uh, uh, um, and it, it, it stops in a mover that moves other things, mm -hmm. but is not itself moved. Mm -hmm. That was as close as Aristotle got to God. But Aristotle was a materialist. He was a scientist, really, mm -hmm. a zoologist. He, you know, examined, you know, the uh, animal life and, 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 and uh, the natural life around him and made observations. And which in itself for other reasons we can't sort of obviously haven't got time to go into it was somewhat revolutionary in, in greek philosophy but aristotle did believe that you could prove the existence of something so aquinas uh took aristotle's uh, idea of proving um you know of of, of of starting with what's in front of you and and reasoning backward to something that caused it all uh, and Aquinas said, well, obviously it was God, you know, mm -hmm. that he was aiming at, even though he couldn't quite mm -hmm. see it. So and if we start with creation, we'll, we'll reason our way back to God. Yeah. And so he adopted Aristotelian reasoning and tried to marry that with divine revelation. And like I said, I mean, it worked for a while in the con in a hermetically sealed culture mm -hmm. where, you Everyone's know, th there wasn't any pagan, you know, uh, it, there wasn't sort of atheist or agnostic thinking or, mm -hmm. you know, other religions coming and whatnot. But when that all changed, the whole thing fell apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... And I um, guess Athens is the evidence of that, because even though Paul acknowledges that, you know, they're, they're groping their way around in the dark, 
ultimately it hasn't led to any real knowledge of God. It's just led to a city chock full of idols. It, yeah, exactly. And and uh, even in the days of Plato, uh, he despaired because he saw the whole thing crashing down, which it did. Um, so at any rate, that that basically there is a lesson in in this for us, which is that we need to submit to God in his self-revelation. He reveals himself through the word of God. Uh, through the scriptures, and and I've got a whole sort of teaching on that that I can't give in the context of this podcast. It explains why the Bible is the self-revelation of God that we need to submit to, but we do need to submit to God as he has revealed himself to us uh, and, and without question. Um, we don't have the capacity. I mean, look at the world around us. Where it, where people think they've got the capacity to find their way to God or define who God is. I mean, look at the destruction, the decadence, the mm-hmm. stupidity, the idolatry of where people have come to. Um, just like Paul says in Romans chapter one, because we're living in a, or, you know, the Romans were postmodernists as well, same as we are today, <laughs> and uh, the ludicrousness of all that, the 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 fallen pagan thinking. It isn't even rational. At the University of British Columbia, they have taken nutritional labels off of food because it might be a trigger to people who are obese and overweight. Mm -hmm. And if you oppose it, you're fat phobic. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, talk about destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where it all winds up when human reason is exalted. And that's what that's what the um, uh, that's what the guy that that's what the author here is saying. I think we're going to have to take another podcast to talk about the rest of this chapter because there were some really really good things in it about holiness and about freedom that I think are worth um, an extended discussion. Okay, yeah, we can put that to next week. Um, And just to kind of wrap up this segment of the conversation he calls that a, a semi-Pelagian way of trying to know God in the sense it's, it's part, part grace and part works, part divine revelation and part naturalistic approach. And his point is that the only way to really know God is in Jesus Christ. Now, obviously the only way we can know about Jesus Christ is through the scripture. Scripture is God's self-revelation. Um, but Jesus is the ultimate self disclosure or self-revelation of God. And if God is eternally triune, the only way that you can know that is by knowing God in, in the son who came as a man. And I, that, I guess that's kind of the original battle of the church with Arianism is Arius started, I guess, kind of similar to, um, uh, an Aristotelian approach, Arius started with God as creator and therefore wound up with Jesus being a created being instead of a co-eternal being with the father. And so Athanasius comes along and says, you're starting with God in the wrong place. God is father first and then creator. And the reason that we know he's father is because, uh, 
Jesus has revealed to revealed, revealed him to us as such. And the only way he can be eternally father is if he is also eternally son. And so therefore the only way to really know God is to know him in the son, because that's the only way to know him as the father. Which is why Jesus said, you're looking at God basically, you know, how can you question? You are looking at God when you look at me, because Jesus is representing who God is in himself Mm -hmm. on the streets of Jerusalem. It's a Mm -hmm. staggering thought. Mm -hmm. And so when we lean on our rational powers um, to know God, we wind up with all kinds of distortions um, and we end up, making uh, ourselves God of God because God has to fit to our rationalistic. um, But the positive side is that uh, the life within the Trinity that has existed before all creation through the incarnation, through Jesus coming to this world, that life of the Trinity overflows into us through the empowering of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, And, that is a revolutionary thought, which we can pick up when we talk about holiness. But holiness isn't our running around doing A, B, and C, or not doing A, B, and C. It is really the life of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, overflowing into our lives. Not not that we we are identified with God, because you know we're we carry transcendent power in earth and vessels, but I can't make myself holy but God places his life within me. That is profoundly, that's the most hopeful thing I've heard today. You know, <laughs> uh, that's what I need to hear. I don't, I don't have to try to hold myself up because I can't, but God comes down and dwells within me. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Like the, because God is love and love is defined as God, that interrelationship within the Trinity overflows you know, it's like that in interrelationship that was going on before creation overflowed into creation. That's how the cosmos was created in the first place. The angelic order, human beings were created. It was the overflow of the love of God within the Trinity. It, it had to overflow because mm-hmm. of the nature of who God is. And it is now overflowed through Christ and by the indwelling of the spirit into us today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's come back to some of these specific attributes next week. Uh, we'll be joined by Chris Palmer. Um, and I know he's read this book as well. So uh, I'm sure he'll have something to add to the conversation. Thank you, David, for your time. God bless you, sir. You too. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in.